but sorry about that. A great class, as Mary said, with wonderful people, both in the class and in the church. And from time to time, we wanted to give you a little closer glimpse uh, of the lives of some of the people you're sitting near. And so I roped in, I mean, I asked uh, my friend Martin if he would join me. So Martin, could you come over here, please? And let us get to know you. This is Martin Gleaves. You could welcome him if you'd like. Good to see you, brother. So this is Martin Gleaves. And tell us about your family. Well, uh, I've been married to my lovely wife for 26 years. And uh, between us both, we have uh, seven grandchildren and uh, got five great children as far as grown-ups now. And uh, we have two dogs that we love, and uh, we're just living the life that good Lord's blessed us. Yes, indeed. Now, we went to Israel. When did we go to Israel? 16 in 2016. 16. You were difficult, as I recall. Yes, I I was. I was hard to handle. I was... Wanting, uh, wanting to know everything, I guess, huh? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and we want to know some stuff about you. So, Martin, how long have you and your wife been at Sagemont? Uh, we were probably here about 13 years. Um, we discovered Sagemont by coming to a friend's funeral. Here? Here at uh, Sagemont. And we had been looking. We'd been trying all the other churches and going here and there. And uh, went uh, to a friend of uh, my wife's, her cousin. Husband passed away. And the funeral was held here. So, uh, and then when it got through, we were wondering where we were going to go eat at. Well, everybody made the announcement we're going across the street. Anyway, they fed us. They, you know, the, the service was all beautiful. What I heard was all beautiful. So, uh, me and the wife got in the car and we were talking all the way home. We talked all that week. And that following Sunday, we were here and been here ever since. Y'all haven't chased us off yet. So, fantastic. So, that's kind of an interesting recruiting tool. Um, <laughs> I guess you could say we're, we're dying to get people to come. <clears throat> I guess I could have picked something better, but that's the truth. <laughs> and um, tell us, uh, what are some of the things you've, you've done at Sagemont over the years or been involved in? Well, I volunteered with the media service, uh, one of the camera operators here. And um, that's about it. I mean, other, uh, between camera service, I really don't have any other time to do anything else, but... Uh, that's about it, and 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 what any other way that I can? So okay, good. Yeah. So are you volunteering? Well, we put the flags out for uh, yeah the memorials and and stuff. So whenever the car shows, yeah. yeah. And and what do you do, Martin? What's your vocation? Uh, transport engineer. Your truck driver. Yes. There you go. Okay. <laughs> I knew you'd catch it. <laughs> nice. Very nice. And do you do that across country? No, sir. No, sir. We do it locally, but it's a, it's a, what I've been doing for the last eight years is driving to Waco. Oh, to Waco. And pick up Caterpillar parts. I got you. Yeah, five days a week. But I prayed for a job because I haul gasoline, chemicals. I've been driving some 44 years now. Oh, my. I I started driving in 1979 when I got out of the military. Oh. And once you look through that windshield, it's kind of hard to do something else. Yeah, at this point. Yeah. And so anyway, I started uh, asking for a job that I could go to church on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I prayed and prayed, and uh, good Lord gave me this one. I've been doing it for eight years. And it's Monday through Friday off on weekends, holidays. Nice. So now I'm spoiled. So when yeah, I retire, yeah. I'm going to look for a job that as soon as he says, well, we work Saturdays here, 
I'm going to shake his hand and walk out because we don't work Saturdays. You're you're spoiled. What do you and your wife, uh, what do you do for enjoyment, recreation, hobbies? See, I have, see that guy in a pink shirt? He told me I should ask that question. Ask about their hobbies. So they make up something. No. (laughs) Well, um, we really don't, I mean, what do 60-something-odd-year-olds do? I mean, we, we, our hobby is really to get in our old antique pickup and ride around. Yeah. Uh, I'm feeling good about this. When you get to be in your 60s, what do we do? We just get up and hope we can take our next breath. And, okay, I'm pretty encouraged by your hobby. <clears throat> well, we, we do have a 66 uh, Ford that we... Oh, you work on no, I don't work on it. I just drive it. Yeah. And uh, I call it my Ford Tough with Chevy Stuff pickup. So we cruise the hamburger stands and look for good, good malts. <laughs> with our dogs. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, let's thank Martin for coming up introducing himself to us. Thank you, brother. Right. You're a blessing. God bless you. As are you. Those are the Gleaves, really, really great, great folks. And here comes Elizabeth, wonderful timing. Listen, Elizabeth Nipper is married to Will. They have two beautiful children. And we were in the same church together in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was the pastor, and Elizabeth and her husband show very good judgment. They waited to join that church until I left. So with that wonderful intro... So I'm going to tell the other part of the story. You've heard it a bunch, so I'm just going to say it again. So this is the third time that I've been in this class this morning. So you, do you feel like you've, I feel like I've said this. Um, he keeps saying this, but um, for 10 years, we were part of a struma, and all we ever heard was, were you here when Stuart was here? No, who's Stuart? Were you here when Stuart was here? No, who's Stuart? Were you here when Stuart was here? He's the best teacher. No, who's Stuart? So when we moved to Texas and we found out that Stuart was a minister here, we thought, hmm, probably a pretty good church. So we're here. We, let me rephrase that. We came to visit Sagemont because of Stuart. I understand why this class is so full now that I've heard about him. I've heard him speak. I now understand why Astruma is still talking about a, a Stuart to this day. But Sagemont... He brought us here. Sagemont has now kept us here. So we're glad to be a part of Sagemont. Uh, we do miss our Baton Rouge family, but we are very happy to be here at uh, Sagemont. But I have the wonderful task of heading up the Envision team for our new student building. So I'm here to tell you about two ways right now that you can help get involved and help us lower the funds for Envision. All this is going to happen the week of spring break. The first is student for hire. Our students want you to hire them to come to your house and do any jobs around the house that, frankly, you just don't want to do. Whether it's flower beds, whether it's cleaning the house, whether it's um, cleaning windows, whatever it is that you would like to hire students to do, we want you to put them to work. March 13th and 14th, they're willing to come to your house. About five to six students, they will have adult chaperones with them just to make sure things get done right. Um, And they will work for you in doing anything that you need them to do. What they would like in return is for you to make a very generous donation to Envision. 
So it's their way of leading out and taking the lead in helping to raise money or lower the funds for Envision. They recognize that this is their building. They're going to be able to use it as well as the generations behind them, but they want to be a part. And they are excited about being a part of raising this money. So that's the first way. The second way that you can be a part is we are having a garage sale, which is... This, the 16th of March, the week of, at the weekend of spring break. So we need you, as you're cleaning out, doing all your spring cleaning, to find all that fabulous stuff you have in your house that you don't need anymore. And we all have it, don't we? So what is it that you can donate for us to sell in our garage sale on the 16th? Everything. That's right. Downsize and come drop it off. Um, But we have designated times for you to drop off those items. If you have a form or in the back that you can pick up with all the times that are available, Wednesdays and Thursday evenings from 4 to 6 at the Legacy Room, there will be students there to help you unload all those items if necessary. If you bring clothes, we do ask that they are hung on hangers so it makes it easier for us to process and then to sell also so we don't have a big pile of clothes everywhere. But we also have times during the day, so check out this form, or you can come visit us at the Envision uh, kiosk in the foyer. If you want to hire a student, if you want to find out more information about the garage sale, or if you would like to help us prepare for the garage sale or the day of the sale, you can go online under the events page and sign up, or you can come visit us at the Envision kiosk. And we have all the forms and everything that you can to sign up at for everything there. So if you have questions, I'm heading back that kiosk right now. So come visit me after class and I'll be more than happy to answer any of your questions. Okay. So please come sign something, sign up. We really, our students really want to go work those two days. So think of something that they can come do and then just be a blessing and pay, help um, raise money for Envision. So thank you. How many times have you done this today? Uh, four, I think. Four times. Elizabeth is going around to the classes. She's the perfect person to head up the project, which is to get us all involved. And uh, one of the very encouraging things is that the students are very much involved, which is fitting because the building will be for them. And so uh, Elizabeth is with her team coming up with all kinds of creative ways by which we can get together and raise money or lower the money, as uh, we say around here. So if you can help in the ways Elizabeth mentioned, please do so. Yes, I shall. Uh huh. I shall do it. Elizabeth and her husband have been here about two years. So the legacy room is the original church building, the chapel, where we first began 53 years ago and where this class used to meet a long time ago. It was the old chapel. It's now the legacy room. So that's what Elizabeth is talking about. That's okay. You're doing a great job for a rookie. <clears throat> Well, listen, folks, let's take a, another quick break, or do you want to not take a break? You don't want to take a break? You want to just keep going? Yeah, Martin, you know, when you get to be in your 60s, <laughs> once you sit down, you don't want to get up again. I know the feeling. Okay. All right, fine. Well, we will just pre- press on. I appreciate your interest in Bible study, but it's really an interest in not being bothered. I know what's going on over there. I see right through it. So uh, let me tell you where we are. We are right there in 2 Samuel, <laughs> and we have been for a while. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 20 today. I'll fill you in a little bit. David's the king. He replaced Saul because God said so. But though God said so, not everyone was pleased 
with David as king. In fact, his son, Absalom, rebelled against his own father. The outcome was tragic. Absalom died in his insurrection. He was murdered by David's commanding general, Joab. And uh, you would think things are over, but they're not exactly. David had to flee from his son, terrible thing. And in so doing, he left Jerusalem, crossed the Jordan River, meaning he went east. He's on the other side of the Jordan River and now making his way back to Jerusalem, the royal city, to reestablish himself as king. But there's trouble because Israel is divided into the two southern tribes, known as Judah, and the ten northern tribes, known as Israel. Collectively, we refer to the twelve tribes as Israel, but Judah really consists of the two tribes in the south, and Israel the ten tribes in the north. The rift between them becomes very distinct uh, after Solomon, David's son and successor, passes away. But even now, there's quite a rift. So just to give you an idea what's going on, I'm not sure you need this map, but I need to use my gizmo. Look at my gizmo. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. You want to see something? Look at that. It's unbelievable. What a great place this church is. Okay. So just to fill you in, here's the uh, kingdom of Judah in the south. Jerusalem is in the territory of the tribes uh, of Judah and Benjamin. There's Jerusalem. And so for you on that side, this is the kingdom of Judah. Here's Jerusalem right there. And just north of Jerusalem, that's the border between Judah here and the ten northern tribes, Israel over here. You see that? And to give you a little background, just a frame of reference. Uh, Let's see, where should I start? Um, Over here, you see where it says Phoenician states, Phoenician states, and you can maybe pick out if you have good eyes, Sidon and Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. That's Lebanon. Just to give you a frame of reference, that's present-day Lebanon. And if we bend around here to the right, see where it says Assyrian Empire, Kingdom, of Aram Damascus, kingdom of Aram Damascus. That's present-day Syria in the news today, quite a bit. If you go south from Syria, see where it says kingdom of Ammon, Moab, Edom? That's right. Someone's got it right. That's Jordan. You can see it there. Ammon, and you go down, and you get to Moab and Edom. That's all Jordan. In fact, there's a place right on the bottom of the map, Petra. It's real small. You can see it in small letters. Some of us have been to Petra. That's in Jordan. Great place to go. Some think it's the place where Israel in the end times, namely the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation period, will seek refuge, uh, some say, in Petra. It's possible. And then if you go, you continue uh, around here from Jordan, uh, Egypt would be, ooh, I almost took that boy's eye out. If you go down here <laughs> is Egypt. Uh, down on the bottom of your map would be Egypt. I'll go over here. And then if you, because I can't stand the lawsuit. You know, and so, I mean, he has two eyes. How many does he need? And so you go over here. This is the Gaza Strip. See where it says Philistine states? Philistine states. That's where Goliath is from. We read about Goliath right here, Philistine states. And you can see Gaza, 
That's called the Gaza Strip today. I point it out because it's in the news all the time. In fact, even as we sit here, there are very violent protests there. Gaza was, that area was given over by Israel a few years ago to the Palestinians who chose a government of terrorists. Hamas is a terror group, and they're bent on Israel's destruction. So not only has this land for peace deal not worked, there have been terrible, terrible rocket attacks constantly from Gaza uh, since Israel gave up the territory. Okay, so that's the, that's the lay of the land. At present, uh, the Jordan River is running this way. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee up here. The Sea of Galilee, isn't that an interesting shape? It looks like a harp. And the Hebrew word for harp is kineret. So if you read in the Bible, the Old Testament will refer to that as the Sea of Kinneret, the Harp Sea. So that's, oh, I can do that, Dave. The West Bank, imagine the Jordan River running this way, north to south. The West Bank would be the west side of the Jordan River, and it would encompass a large part of this territory, which in the Bible is referred to as Judea and Samaria. All that is considered the West Bank. Yes, it's quite large. Uh, uh, It's a good question. It's a place of controversy. Who has authority, sovereignty over the West Bank territory? Uh, People like to refer to it as the West Bank because then it wrenches it from its biblical mooring points. Folks, we're talking about Judea and Samaria. It's not some innocuous West Bank. It's ancient Judea and Samaria. And even though there's division amongst the northern and southern tribes, God gave the land to those tribes. Okay, so that's a little bit what's happening. Now, that being the atmosphere, someone takes advantage of the rift between the northern and southern tribes. And that's what we'll read about now in verse 1, 2 Samuel 20. Take a look. Now, a worthless fellow, do you have him described in another way in your Bible? Wicked is good. What would you say? Troublemaker, that's good. Rebel is very good. Transgressor, you're getting the idea. You might even have a translation that refers to him as son of Belial. Anyone have something like that? Well, that's in a connection to to the devil. This is a demonized person is what the insinuation is. What's his name? Sheba. Who is he? He's the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And that's all we know. But you'll soon see this is a man of influence. He's not a good guy. He's a worthless, rebellious, troublemaking, devilish guy. But he has influence and he exerts it, taking advantage of the rift between the tribes. And so here's what he did. He blew the trumpet. But lest you think it's one of those brass things we have in the orchestra, no, it's like this, a shofar, it's called, made of a ram's horn. They still use them in Israel today. And it was used for various purposes, warn the people about an encroaching enemy, summon the assembly for a holy convocation, get the people's attention. That's the purpose of the shofar. If you blow it right, it makes quite a good sound. I'm a kind of a disgrace to my race because I can't get a good sound out of of the doggone thing. In fact, we had an event here some years ago, and I needed someone to blow the shofar, and I knew I couldn't do it, you know. It would be 
get this big shofar, and this little Jewish guy gets out there. So I couldn't bear the embarrassment. So I asked Emery Gad to blow it because he played the trumpet when he was a kid in high school over here in South Houston or wherever he went to high school, some unaccredited school, I'm sure. <clears throat> no one Emery. And, man, he could get a sound out of that. It was kind of embarrassing to me, humiliating. Here the Jewish kid squeaks along. And this Gentile guy from Pasadena gets this beautiful sound. So every time I see the shofar, I have to tell that story. It's therapy for me. So anyway, he blows it, and he says, we have no portion in David. You know what he's saying to people? Come on, man. He's not your boy. Uh, We don't want anything to do with him. He's not our king. By the way, we don't have any inheritance in the son of Jeff. Hey, David is showing preference to the two southern tribes, the Judahites. He didn't care about us up here in the north. Therefore, we don't want anything to do with that son of Jesse. That's an insult. I'll tell you why. Even though David is the son of Jesse, he's come to be much more. He's referred to as King David. And Sheba said, not to me. I will reduce him. He's just the son of Jesse. He's no royalty to me. Listen, he is rejecting God's sovereign choice of king. You don't want to be doing that. But anyway, that's what he did. And so he had no respect for David and says, every man to his tents, O Israel, which is a way of saying, go home. David is in a procession, military procession, kind of a parade. He's crossing from one side of the Jordan. He's going west. He's coming back to Jerusalem. Sheba says, we're not, we're not joining the parade. We're not celebrating his return to Jerusalem. Come on, let's go home. Every man to his tents. So all the men of Israel, they did this. So you see, I don't know this guy, but he has a lot of power. All the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. So once again, the people reject God's chosen king in favor of a leader who's a much lesser person than God's choice. Folks, I got to tell you something. Um, I see a real parallel here between King David and King Jesus. King Jesus also was in this place, Jerusalem. He too was rejected by his own. He had to leave Jerusalem uh, having been treated with great disrespect. He was disgraced. He was stripped naked. He was impaled on a cross. They made fun of him. And he left Jerusalem uh, uh, in in a disgraceful way. Uh, but he'll return, just like King David did. Uh, King Jesus will reestablish his rule and reign in that very place, Jerusalem. So says the Bible once again. Listen, I want to tell you something. When you reject God's authority with regard to who his king is, I want to know whose authority are you going to put yourself under. You've got to serve somebody. I'll tell you what the Bible says about that. If you refuse to submit to the authority of God's anointed king, that's King Jesus, then you're left with no choice but this, Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Welcome to 2019. It's amazing to me how otherwise intelligent people can seem to be so blind with the moral, ethical imperatives of the day. I don't get it. Life what constitutes marriage, all this stuff. I just, I don't understand it. How could people smarter than me be so wrong about all this stuff? Listen, if you reject divine authority, you're left with yourself on the throne. and You're not a very good king or queen. You cannot rule and run your life. And I want to tell you, 
When that happens, God gives us over. Uh, so Romans chapter 1. Uh, I know we are looking with anticipation to the return of King Jesus. He will judge the world. Uh, uh, that's his ultimate judgment time. But I think he's already judging the world as I read Romans 1 in three ways. One, the sexual revolution. The so-called liberation of us to pleasure our bodies has been nothing but horrific bondage. It's led to diseases and disarray and all the rest. I think that's the judgment of God. Have your way. God gave them over. Secondly, homosexuality. Now, don't misunderstand. I think homosexual behavior has always been. Understand that. But I think you will agree with me when I say the manifestation of homosexual activity is today far different than it's ever been. When I grew up, there were uh, people with same gender attraction, but you wouldn't really know about that because it wasn't something they were proud of. They kind of kept it private and to themselves. Today is a little different. Today it's paraded as a legitimate, almost noble lifestyle. There are flags, parades, and, and all the rest. In fact, today's homosexual agenda is not just to be accepted, but rather to foist the agenda on the rest, including schools and churches. It's a totally different agenda. In fact, what used to be hidden in an unacceptable uh, lifestyle, now you can find uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on uh, House Hunters and Home and Garden TV, for crying out loud, same gender couples and so on. And so I'm not in favor of abusing, hurting, denigrating anybody. I'm just telling you that is not an acceptable lifestyle unless your own mind is the authority in calling the shots. When you reject divine authority, you're left with your own estimation of what you think is right. And everyone is doing what is right in his or her own mind. In fact, today, the homosexual agenda has picked up such steam. It's the cause which celebrities and young people are enamored by and join more readily than any other. The gay community are seen as victims who have been denied civil rights, and therefore we have to take up the cause. And in fact, homosexual behavior has come to be so attractive, I'm telling you something that you'll be disturbed by if you don't know about it, but our young people are experimenting uh, not so much with drugs and booze, they've always done that, but now with same-gender um, sexual behaviors. Those who don't have that inclination are finding it to be, uh, you know, an acceptable, you know, I kissed a girl and I liked it. You know that song? Who sings that? Uh, Brittany or so? Who? Katy Katie Perry. Katy Perry, by the way, raised by Pentecostal Christian parents who was Listen, when Katy Perry took herself out from under God's authority, this beautiful, talented gal is left to be under her own authority. And one of the judgments of God is a mind that doesn't work. That's the third thing in Romans 1 that shows me God's judgment is being poured out. Sexual misbehavior, homosexuality, and what's called a reprobate mind. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means a mind that doesn't work. How else can you explain what happened in the New York State Legislature? These are elected brilliant officials, but good night. I couldn't held a candle to them. Great personalities, well-educated, the whole deal. How can you celebrate the murder of a perfectly viable child up to the point of birth and even there beyond? And other states are getting on the bandwagon. The explanation for me is a reprobate mind. That means a mind that doesn't work. That's an indication of the judgment of God. Now, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm praying. I'll tell you why. That would be me. 
and such were some of you. When Jesus saved us, he didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He saved us from a mind that doesn't work. How did he do that? The Bible says we get the mind of Christ when we get the Christ. He puts his mind, his thinking, his value system within us. Now, we're not thinking exactly in harmony with him yet. We're growing, but good night. We've come a long way. That's part of the salvation experience. And so, uh, if you reject God's anointed king, then someone's going to occupy his place on the throne, and that's what's happening today. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. The two southern tribes did accompany David back to Jerusalem. And in verse 3, I want you to see the first thing uh, David did as he reestablished his rule in Jerusalem. It's odd. Take a look. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the concubines, whom he had left to keep the house. Who were they? David had a sexual problem. We know this. It was a pattern. It wasn't just Bathsheba, for crying out loud. Here we go again. Listen, I want to tell you, there is no justification for what he did. One man irreversibly bound to one woman to make one unit. That's God's plan. He's got ten concubines. He's got Bathsheba, but he's got ten over here in case Bathsheba has a headache or something. But then when David's run out of town by his son, His son gets bad counsel. His son was Absalom, a terrible counselor named Ahitopel said to him, hey, why don't you sleep with your father's women? Do it publicly. In so doing, you will be saying to people, I am supreme. Everything that was my father's is now mine. And Absalom thinks this is a good idea. So he, in effect, raped 10 women publicly. It was on the roof of the palace. They actually set up a tent for this to happen. That's what he did. David comes back. The first thing he does is to provide for them. He said he placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but did not go into them. He did not have sex with them anymore. Why? Well, they're defiled now, see. <laughs> In the eyes of the people, his son slept with them. He's not going to sleep with them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Boom, we're done with them. Horrible. Listen, folks, they're young. What do you think, David's going to have a harem made up of old ladies? These are young ladies. Now what is their lot in life? Nobody will have them. They have to live the rest of their life as widows. Okay, so he's providing, providing for them materially. Big stinking deal. They were abused. They were neglected. You know what you're seeing in 2 Samuel 20? You're seeing humanness. You're seeing sin, unrestrained. I hope you're not saying, wow, those people. I hope you're saying, that's me, but for the grace of God. I hope you're saying, all these unrestrained sinful inclinations are inherent in me, but that's another thing I've been saved from. God added to the mix of my nature, my humanity and flesh, he added his spirit. And now they can war against each other. And it is a war, flesh versus spirit. But at least now I can pose some resistance to the flesh. They had none. This is what happens when you have unrestrained 
flesh. So you're, seeing, you're going to see stuff in this. If you come away from this hour thinking after reading 2 Samuel 20 that we are basically good, we just make some bad choices, well, you, you have a mind that's not working. This is a mirror. Well, anyway, so this is what happens with the women. Now, the second thing he does, David, is this, verse 4. The king said to Amasa, who's Amasa? He was the commanding general under his murdered son's regime, Absalom. Amasa served under Absalom. Why is David using his services now? I'll tell you why. Because David is a consummate politician. And he knows Absalom probably still has some followers. I'll keep his general here um, in my cabinet so, so that I can, you know, unify the government, that kind of deal. So Amasa replaced David's commanding general, whose name was Joab. And if you think Joab is going to take that sitting down, Hang in there. You'll see what Joab does. Anyway, David calls Amasa, and he says, call out the men of Judah. Do this for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David, he had appointed him. So David wanted this done in three days. Why? Because he's a military leader. He knows I can't give Sheba an opportunity to gather troops together. I can't, we got to get this guy because he's posing a threat to my administration. We've got to deal with the threat. Sheba, lickety split. So Amasa, get it done. Rally the troops within three days. Well, Amasa apparently couldn't get it done. Never was procrastination a more damaging thing. He blew it. And so David, uh, again, quite a uh, veteran leader, he does this in verse 6. David said to Abishai, he's going to someone else. Who's Abishai? He's Joab's brother. This is nuts. I'm telling you, it's just crazy. He goes to Abishai and says, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he doesn't find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. David is a smart guy. He knows there are walled fortified cities in the land. If they don't get to Sheba in an open place, Sheba will dig in. He'll, he'll find a defensive walled fortified city and it'll be harder to extract him from it. So he tells Abishai, get it done. So verse 7, Joab's men, now here's Joab again. Where's Joab? Well, he's a demoted general, but he's still a military guy. So he's going out to war. Joab's men went out after him along with the Cherethites and Pelethites and all the mighty men. So who are the Cherethites and the Pelethites? It depends on who you ask. There's a lot of difference of opinion. Some say they're Israelites who lived in Philistine territory and took on Philistine names. And uh, earlier, Second Samuel, we find out these people groups, Cherethites and the Pelethites, were David's personal bodyguards. They were special troops. Uh, others say, no, they're actually Philistines who decided to serve David. Some would say, no, they can't be Philistines. They wouldn't, wouldn't have foreigner soldiers that close to them. Anyway, I don't know what the answer is. All I know is these are tough dudes, special forces, David's personal bodyguard. They go out, Joab's part of them, and they're going to go out and pursue Sheba. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now, verse 8, 
When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, what large stone? We don't know, but they did. It was a natural outcropping, a landmark in the day that marked Gibeon. And so here's, uh, here's Gibeon. On top is a picture of Gibeon today. Those are the ruins. It was on a hill. You can see the ruins of Gibeon. And down below, you see a map, give you an idea. Again, if this is, if this is Jerusalem down here, here's Gibeon, just about four or five miles north of Jerusalem. That's where, that's where it is. You can see it over there. That's about four or five miles north of Jerusalem. So they go to this place, Gibeon, and Amasa came to meet them there. So here's Amasa reentering the scene. He blew it as the commander, but he doesn't want to miss out on the victory of this military campaign. And so he shows up. And now Joab was dressed in his military attire. And over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at his waist. And as he went forward, it fell out. Looks like an accident. I and Josephus don't think it's an accident. Josephus was the famous Jewish historian. He and me and a bunch of other cynical New Yorkers think accident my foot. Uh, Think about this. The thing is strapped on his outer garment. It really wasn't a full-length sword. It was more like a dagger. It accidentally fell out, which means now it's an unsheathed knife. He's getting close to Amasa. Amasa is his replacement. He's a prideful narcissist. Joab is. He doesn't like the demotion. And he has an opportunity now to deal with Amasa, who, by the way, is his cousin. That's a family affair. So in verse 9, Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Not actually brother. It's just a greeting. They're cousins, two of David's sisters produced these two kids. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So in the last class, I had a guy with a beard, and I made use of it. So, yeah, he's going to probably shave it off now. So uh, let me, I don't see any bearded men or women, which is a good thing. I just, I'm just saying. So, but if you can imagine this, he, uh, he approaches Amasa, and he takes hold of his beard, Joab does this with his right hand. Looks like a weird deal, but it wasn't. That was the way they greeted each other. So he would take him by the beard and get closer to him like this to kiss him. So the text says, grab this beard with what hand? Right hand. What's in his left hand? The dagger. He picked up the dagger. Now, now listen, Amasa's not expecting a doggone thing because it was an accident. The knife fell out. Second, Joab retrieves it with his left hand. Well, that's not the hand you use for offensive purposes. Sorry, self-pause. Most people are right-handed. They would have a shield in their left hand, and they would have their dagger in their right hand. That's the strong hand. That's the offensive hand. But here, to put Amasa at ease, the knife drops. It's unsheathed. He picks it up. He pulls him with his right hand close to give him a kiss. You tell me how hard it is to, to penetrate that guy with the dagger right there at close quarters, and that's exactly what he does. So you can read it here in the text. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword. He didn't expect this, which was in Joab's hand. So he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground. This is kind of a 
picture of what it might have looked like. Not the inward parts. I mean, you know, just not. But he, he poured out his inward parts on the ground. So you know what he did? He disemboweled him. Now, how did he do it with his left hand? He is a tough dude. This is a seasoned, murderous military guy. Even though that wasn't maybe his hand of choice, he was a switch hitter. He, he didn't just stab him. He moved that thing around. He did some unbelievable surgery there. He disemboweled the guy. And the text said he only had to do that once because he died, but probably not right away. And so here's what happened. Joab committed a vicious murder. It wasn't the first time. David remembers all this. Later, in giving his advice to Solomon, his son, this is what David says, 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace. And he put the blood of war on his belt about his waist and on his sandals on his feet. So act according to your wisdom. Do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. David is passing the buck to Solomon. Solomon, justice. Now I ask myself, well, David, why didn't you do something? This guy, you got a murderer in your ranks. Well, political expediency once again. Not a stretch. We got politicians just like this. They know there's something rotten in Denmark, in their cabinet, in their administration. Who knows what it is? But they keep it going for political expediency. So David looks the other way and passes the buck to Solomon. Now Joab committed a heinous deed. His treachery was even intensified because of the relation. It was a family relation. This is Amasa, his cousin. He betrayed him with a kiss, which reminds me of another betrayal. This one was done to the Lord by who? Also with a kiss. Listen, Matthew 26. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests, elders of the people. Now he he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss. He is the one, sees him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. A lot of this is foreshadowings of what would happen to David's greater king. What a horrific betrayal again by one in the inner circle. Judas was numbered with the twelve. He was there at the last supper and the Lord was betrayed by him. Now there stood, verse 11, by him, by Joab, one of Joab's young men. And he said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. It is very possible he's not dead yet. He's disemboweled, but I'm told you can live on that way, in an excruciating way for a while after it happens. Anyway, he's lying there in the road, in the middle of the highway, 
And when the man saw that all the people stood still, all the soldiers, that is, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still, dragged him out into a field maybe like this. So imagine you see this disemboweled, possibly still breathing, aching, suffering human being in the road. You're on your way to pursue this guy, Sheba, but you're a little distracted by what's happening here. So they remove the body without respect, pull him probably by the feet into a field, maybe like that, throw a cloak over him to hide him. But God sees. He sees the grotesque nature of the sin which is in us. The heart, the Bible says, is desperately wicked. Who can even comprehend it? We did not just get saved from the penalty of sin. We got saved from its powerful influence over us. Praise Jesus. I'm not just waiting for the consummation of salvation. It will come when we're in glorified bodies. I'm rejoicing in that I'm saved from a reprobate sick mind and I'm saved from my irreversible compulsion to sin now. I can sin if I choose to, but I'm not obligated to anymore. I was enslaved to it before. You know, when you put yourself in submission to God's appointed and anointed king, when you are a subject of the king, then you're really free. Isn't this an enigma? When you think you're free of King Jesus, you're really in bondage to a very cruel taskmaster, your own sin. But when you say, I'm so happy to be a bond servant of King Jesus, no, that's freedom. That's real freedom. You see what I mean? So anyway, this is what's happening. And, and as soon as, verse 13, he was removed from the highway, all of the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel. Sheba did. Why did he do that? Because he's recruiting troops. <laughs> That's why David wanted to snuff him out real quick before he had a chance to do this. He's passing through all the land with recruiting posters, you know. The army needs you. That's what he's kind of doing. And in fact, he even went to, it says, Abel, even Beth Ma'akah, and all the Berites. He went north. I'll show you this on a map just to give you an idea. So the whole thing started right down here in Jerusalem in the south. Then they went up here. There's Gibeon again. They kept going. They passed a place called Shechem. And then they went up here to Bet Shan. Some of us have been to that place. They kept going north. They went past Chatzor, which becomes one of Solomon's fortress cities. And they go all the way right up there. They are about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, right like that. Right above here is the Lebanese border. So they, Sheba is really running for his life. He went all the way north. So you can see here on this end. It all started down here in Jerusalem. They kept all the way up here. Here's the Sea of Galilee, and they went 25 miles north, right up here, Abel Beth Ma'akah. It's about five miles to the west of a place called Dan. Some of us have been there. You've heard the expression, from Dan to Beersheba. Beersheba is off the map all the way down here in the south. That's the full north-south extent 
of the land. See, this guy's desperate now. Sheba, he's not recruiting apparently enough troops. So he's looking for a place to hide. So he goes all the way up north to this place called, well, here's, here, here's what it looks like today. That's an aerial photograph of Abel Beth Ma'aka. You see it's on a hill looking down. That's how they build because that gives you some opportunity against an invader. Those are the ruins of this very city we're reading about here in this text. So they go up there. David was smart. David knew we got to get this guy. He's going to find himself a walled city, and that's what he does up there. So verse 15, they came and besieged him in Abel Bath Ma'aka, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city. Again, it was a walled city, and this was a common uh, practice. This is how you penetrate the wall. You build up a siege ramp of what? Um, crushed earth, packed in rocks and earth. You build a ramp. Sometimes you put a battering ram on top of it and knock the walls down. In fact, a lot of us went to have gone to Masada, which means fortress, Masada. And even today, you can see a similar siege ramp that was built by the Romans 2,000 years ago. You see the remains of it even today. That's what he's doing. Can you imagine being in the city? You're just a citizen of Abel Beth Ma'aka. This is, you don't have a dog in this fight. You don't know what's going on. Who's Sheba? He's not one of us. He's just charged in here. He said, close the door. Close the door. And who's this guy? Joab. Why are they knocking down our walls? What did we ever? They're going crazy. You know why? They're about to die is what's going to happen. The walls are going to go down. It's just a matter of time. The people in it fear for their life for good reason. They are nervous. And something happens, verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city. What's her name? What does your Bible say her name is? It does not say what her name is. We do not know. If you have a Bible that names her, you need to get you a new Bible. We don't know her name, but she is referred to as a wise woman. Now, that's a good name to have. Wouldn't you just love for people to think of you that way? There is a wise woman or there is a wise man. By wisdom, we're not talking about book smarts. We're talking about skill in living life. This is a wise woman. Who is she? We don't know. I can't wait to meet her because, boy, was she courageous. Look what she does. She calls out, here. Here, please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. A woman? Seriously, Stan, come on. Oh, (laughs) a wise woman and a wise man. Way to go, Stan. Stan is desperate for points. Really great. Very nice. It took you a while to think about that. Yeah. That's pretty good. Folks, I apologize for the interruption. (laughs) So uh, think about that. This is a tough guy. He's a seasoned military guy, be decked with all these swords and who knows what. He's commanding the whole army. They're knocking your walls down. And a lady, ladies don't have rights in those days like this. You know, woman, your place. Well, she knew her place was to take advantage of an opportunity to save her city. So she steps up to the plate. She calls out to the general, come here that I may speak with you. What's he going to do? Verse 17, so he approached her. And the woman said, are you Joab? (laughs) She doesn't even know for sure. This guy is full of himself. 
Well, he didn't intimidate her. Are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. Isn't it amazing how God can use the most unlikely of us to do great things? Don't count yourself out. When there's an opportunity uh, before you, it's probably for yours to take advantage of. Don't say, little old me, I'm just a woman. I'm old. I'm this, I'm that. Don't be doing that. Don't be doing that. If there's an opportunity, you're the woman, you're the man. Step up. So this woman's quite an example. She's one of the heroes, heroine of the Bible, in my opinion. She spoke to him saying, formerly they used to say they will surely ask advice at Abel, and thus they ended the dispute. What's she saying? Joab, do you know the reputation our city has? We were thought of to be a place uh, in which wise men and women resided to such extent that people would come far and wide to seek counsel here. They might have been inquiring into the will of God, and they came here. This is our reputation. Wise people live here, kind of like Pearland or something. <laughs> That's what she was saying. And, and, and she's essentially saying, and you are about to destroy us? She goes on, I, verse 19, am uh, of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Now, there she's not referring to herself as the mother. She's referring to the city. The city was maternal in the sense that it was the safe place. It was the place people came for nurture, just like you would with your own mama. She's saying, would you, Mr. General, Mr. High and Mighty, would you destroy this kind of city? She said, why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And now she invokes a higher authority. By the way, we have that. We don't have inherent authority, but we can, in the name of Jesus, if you're named by Jesus, you can invoke his authority. That's what she does. Would you destroy a city that is part of the Lord's inheritance? What does he do? Verse 20, he says, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over, and I will depart from the city. And the woman, this is a surprise, said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Holy moly. See, I was getting the image of this is a little old Jewish lady making matzo ball soup. No, she's a head remover. And she was athletic. She's going to toss this head over the wall. She's got an arm, this lady. This is, listen, this is an unbelievable chapter. And if you bind into this thing, we are basically good and pure and we just make some bad turns, then you got more faith in stupidity than you deserve. Folks, I want to tell you, this is an accurate record of what happens when human sin goes unrestrained. And so this is what happens. So verse 22, the woman wisely came to all the people. Why is it wise? Well, because it's better to lose one creep than for your whole city to be destroyed. That's what's going on. So she wisely came to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba. Boy, he was surprised, I'll bet you. And uh, the, he's the son of Bickery and they threw it to Joab. You, I wish I didn't have a slide or I would have shown you about that ancient athletic event. And so... He uh, 
Joab, he blew the trumpet. There goes that trumpet again. And they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. A woman's, a little woman's boldness and courage led to the resolution of a significant crisis, the potential destruction of a whole city consisting of innocent people. A woman did that. Don't count yourself out. Don't do that. Uh, Listen. You may have been put down by this society, labeled by race, by gender, by age, who knows. Well, you have been, everybody. That's the way it is. That's a sin-sick society. Racism is not a political concept. Racism is a manifestation of unbridled human sin. When God says, I love the way I made people, and we say, yeah, well, I don't approve. (laughs) That is the quintessence of rebellion against Almighty God. He loves the mosaic. We say, I don't. You see that when you reject divine authority, you just put yourself on the, you just put yourself on the throne. So, so don't count yourself out. If if you're in Christ, you have the most elevated position on earth. You've been elevated. You're a child of the King. No matter what other messages you get, and will continue to get until He returns. I know about all that. Uh, listen to the significant message of Jesus. You're mine. I'll never leave you or forsake you. He calls you a child, a son, a daughter. Oh, my goodness. That's what he says. So anyway, this woman took it to heart, (laughs) and she stepped up. Nobody else would and saved the day, really. So now what happens in verses 23 to 26 is a list of names, people who served in David's administration, in his government. Why is that in there? Well, the last time we had this was in 2 Samuel 8. It's repeated, albeit with some changes. But I think this is an indication of the reestablishment of David's rule on the throne in Jerusalem. Why is that important? It's for this reason. There's all kinds of human sin and crazy nutso stuff going on. But God's still sovereign. And his anointed and appointed king will sit on the throne. David's back in power. In spite of all this nutso stuff, Amazah and Abishai and Abner and Joab and this lady and concubines and rapes and what? I mean, only, I mean your head spins, for crying out loud. And then you end up with David's in his rightful place. He didn't deserve a doggone bit of it, for crying out loud. But this is God's sovereign choice. God chose David to lead. Well, my point is this. Uh, the Lord Jesus has been largely ignored and rejected and minimized and insulted by most of humanity. Crazy things have happened in human history and continue to happen. (laughs) But sovereign God will have his king on the throne. Jesus is coming again. He's not coming to Alvin, Texas to set up. I'm sorry, folks. It's a good place to go. I like Alvin. But the Lord Jesus is coming back to that royal city. That's the city of the great king. Now, why did you? I don't have any idea about you, but he did. You, you ask him about I just know he did. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city of peace. It's not had any peace in its history, but it will when the prince of peace sits on the throne. When's he coming? I don't know when he's coming. Could it be today? You're darn tootin' it could be. Today I woke up, I had quiet time. I'm in the Psalms now. And I spoke about the coming of the king who will judge with equity and righteousness. And suddenly I was struck with this. Am I ready? Am I ready for that reality? And I did a little personal evaluation. And, and, and how do I get more ready? And what am I doing while I wait? Am I serving the king? Well, I have some fruit to offer him. 
when he returns, ask yourself those questions. I want to hurt anybody, but get ready. Jesus is coming again. I think the fullness of sin is pretty much upon us. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, but for God's grace, that would be us as well. But things are really, really happening at a rapid clip, at a level I've never seen. International things that are out of control. The best of us, I don't care what party, what person running for office. I mean, here we go again. We're getting ready for people to run for office. I support the process, but good night. Every one of us making promises they cannot keep. I would vote for the man or woman who finally said, Dear folks, I really like your vote, but it's not because I think I can make much of a difference. <laughs> Frankly, we done made a mess of things. <laughs> Don't look a little old me to fix it. I'll just try not to make it worse. Could I have your vote? Yeah. <laughs> you got my vote. But this thing, I'm going to clean up this, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Come on, man. You're not the king. You're not the king. You can't... <laughs> You can't even govern yourself. The people in high office are unrestrained in their passions. We hear about this. No party has a monopoly on sin. All of them. Both. All of them. How are you going to govern me when you can't govern you? How are you going to govern the country when you can't govern you? So I'm waiting for King Jesus to return, be on the throne. So are you. But while we wait, that doesn't mean inactivity. That means get busy. I want to be like that wise woman. I don't know her name. I want to be like her. I just want to be alert and ready for the opportunity. In Hebrew, we have a word, hineni. It means here I am. Where are you, Stuart? Hineni. Here I am, Lord. I don't want to be a moss and procrastinate when the king needs me to do something. I don't want to be apart from him in sin and stupid worldly stuff that gives you about three minutes of pleasure and then the heartache thereafter. I don't want to do that. I want to be ready to be called off the bench. Get moving, Stuart. Put on your weaponry. I got something for you to do. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How about you? The king is coming. He is our hope. It's not what's going to happen in 2020 or before 2000 when all this. I think the one thing we Americans can all agree on is we cannot trust our government. (laughs) But if you do, okay. I don't want to ruin it for you, but I respect the government, as I should. I'm a Christian citizen. I pray and all the rest. I'm ready to disobey it when it asks me to do something contrary to God's will, for sure. Yeah, I'm ready to do that, for sure. But trust? I trust King Jesus. I trust the Father's anointed king. I'm not going to rebel against him. Otherwise, what authority is going to lead me? Mine? You know who I trust less than our government? Me. I know me more than the government. They are so good at hiding stuff. You know these scandalous things we read about, we hear about? (laughs) I don't think we know one bit of what's going on. That's just the stuff we know about. But I know everything about me. I do not trust me. I don't want to be on the throne of my life or anybody else's. I am so thrilled King Jesus took up his residence in my life. And I know you are too. Look up, our redemption draweth nigh. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, and we will not bow before any other. We will respect the institutions we are affected by, but we love you. We will worship you. And we say to you, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and yet not before the full extent of your gracious and merciful redemption runs its course, even through one such as us, 
throughout the world. This we pray in Jesus' name, in King Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time.